0: Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 9. John 9. What makes a person a person? What makes a human being valuable, worthy of love and respect and dignity? That may seem like an easy question for you, but let me tell you, the answers to that question have led to some of the greatest atrocities in human history. At times in the past, personhood has been determined based on how someone looks, or what they're able to do, or where they come from. So, those who possessed the right qualities were people, and those who did not were less than. They were not people, but animals, or property, or trash. For example, that thinking is what led to the Holocaust. Hitler embraced and taught the idea that there was a perfect human race, a standard of what a human being should be. And everyone who did not measure up to that standard could be discarded and exterminated. And millions of people were killed. This thinking is also found in the original draft of our United States Constitution in which slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. People from Africa were literally treated as property to be be bought and sold. And this thinking has also led to many genocides, most recently the the Rwandan genocide in the 90s. When one group called the Hutus labeled another group called the Tutsis cockroaches who needed to be stamped out. And in 100 days, somewhere around 800,000 Tutsi people were killed. Look, I know these are extreme examples, but I think it shows just what is at stake in this conversation about personhood and human dignity. How you answer that question, what makes a person a person, is vital and will influence the way you treat other people. Does human dignity come from some sort of special quality or genetic trait? Or does human dignity come from something outside of ourselves, from a greater authority that says all people have value? The Bible, I believe, provides the answer to these questions and gives us a framework that is both countercultural and yet beautiful. The answer is what Scripture calls the image of God. Uh, We're in the midst of a series exploring this doctrine, which in Latin is called Imago Dei. Uh, The image of God is first referenced at the very beginning of the Bible with God's creation of people. When God chose to make mankind, he made them male and female, each in his image. We see in those first pages of Scripture that to bear God's image means that we are made to reflect him and to relate to him. And this image is not something earned or something that can be taken away. Though sin has distorted our ability to image God as we should, every human being, every person is made in God's image. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, the New Testament tells us simply that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the only man who's ever perfectly reflected and perfectly related to God. So he provides for us this framework of what it looks like to be who we were created to be. Through Jesus, we can be saved and changed and then conformed to his image. And we can begin to more accurately reflect and relate to God as we were designed. Knowing all along that one day we will perfectly image God in heaven. So we're taking that doctrine, that essential doctrine, the image of God, and looking at how it speaks to and impacts the most important issues of our culture today. We've talked about gender and sexuality, marriage and singleness, and the preborn. And today, I want us to think about what the image of God means for people with disabilities. This is another group that throughout history has been viewed as less than people, as burdens or mistakes. In fact, one thing I recently learned was that in Nazi Germany, amongst the many heinous things he did, Hitler ordered doctors to euthanize those with severe disabilities, and they estimate 200,000 of those people were killed. Because again, the idea was that a person's value and worth was determined by man rather than by God. Human dignity was only given to those who measured up and those who didn't could be discarded. In fact, had to be discarded because they weren't actually people. That's what they said. So what does the image of God mean for people with disabilities? And how should that affect what we do as a church? That's what I want us to see this morning and I want us to bear in mind as we take on this topic, this is a much bigger category of people than we may realize initially. The Pew Research Center estimates that there are just over 42 million Americans who live with a disability, with those over the age of 75 making up the largest percentage. This includes people with hearing or vision or cognitive or walking or other self-care challenges. So when we engage this topic, we need to remember, we're talking about the child with Down syndrome. We're talking about the young adult facing a debilitating mental health condition. We're talking about the person who's injured and paralyzed on the job. And we're talking about the senior adult who has lost their hearing or mobility. With this broad of a category, that means we're talking about many of the people in our own church and many of the people we care for and love in our own families, So with all that in mind, let's look at the three questions we're answering in each of this series as a way to guide us through. Here's the first question. Number one, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach? Throughout his ministry, we know Jesus encountered many people who had disabilities. The gospels are filled with these encounters, often with Jesus demonstrating his divine power through healing when John the Baptist sent messengers to inquire if Jesus was really the Messiah, listen to what Jesus said to say back to John to justify his ministry. This is Luke 7, verses 22 and 23. It'll be on the screen. Jesus said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus right here, he's pointing John, his cousin, back to these prophecies from Isaiah in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And he's telling him that these miracles, these things happening, prove he is the promised one. The miracles show that he's the Son of God. That's the big reason Jesus did the healings and miracles he did. But I want to zoom in on one particular encounter Jesus had with a man who was born blind. I believe this is the key text on the topic of disability, but it's here because it's here, Jesus pulls back the curtain and reveals something very important to us. Now look with me at John chapter nine. and let me read verses one through seven. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, "Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Notice first a simple statement in verse 1. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw the man. We know from later in this story that this man was somewhat known in the community because he was a beggar. It's likely that he sat in the same place every day begging for help. I wonder how many times people passed by him each day and maybe tossing him some change on occasion or just ignoring him. But here's what Jesus does first. This is so important. Jesus sees him. Jesus saw people. He didn't ignore who the world ignored. He didn't look the way others looked. He saw people. He valued them. He had compassion on them. The disciples, they see that Jesus sees this man, and they ask a question that's pretty insensitive. They say, Rabbi, whose sin, this man or his parents, he was born the way he is. The disciples had a belief that was common to Judaism at this time. They believed that disability was a punishment from God because of the person's sin or even their parents' sin passed down. Jesus says, no, this man's blindness is not the result of his sin or his parents' sin. And here's where I want to clarify something. Jesus is not saying that suffering isn't because of sin. All suffering in the world, including my suffering and your suffering, is a result of sin in a general sense. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3 and mankind experienced what we call the fall, brokenness and suffering entered the world. So yes, any suffering and pain and difficulty we face in this life is a result of living in a fallen, sinful world. But what Jesus is saying here is that specific suffering is not necessarily necessarily the result of a specific sin. Yes, sometimes we face the consequences of our sin and the decisions we make. But we need to be very careful not to conclude that when someone gets cancer or loses a job or gets hurt, that they're being punished by God. Well, if you just had more faith, this wouldn't happen to you. Or if you were just living right with the Lord, you wouldn't have got sick. No, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. And Jesus makes that clear here. This man is not being punished for his sins. But he says, and here's the part to underline, he says it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. I heard one pastor explain it like this. He said the disciples... We're looking for an explanation for the blindness. They wanted to know what caused this situation. But Jesus tells them the explanation here is not to be found by looking for the cause, but rather by looking for the purpose. This man's blindness had a purpose. And the purpose was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this man's blindness was not some sort of bad luck or unfortunate accident in the womb. Rather, this man was born blind so that God might be glorified through him and his life. Here's how we can sum it up with a simple statement. What did Jesus teach? Here's what it is. Jesus taught that God is sovereign over disability. That word sovereign speaks of God's reign and control. The Bible makes clear that God is sovereign over all things. He has all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, and he reigns over every part of life. Now, that raises a whole host of difficult questions like, how can God be sovereign over suffering, over sin and evil, over all the terrible things happening in the world? And we don't have time to go down that road today, and I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have all the answers. But here's what I do know. Nothing takes God by surprise. There is no such thing as an accident or a coincidence or luck or chance or karma. Okay, God is always working and he is always good. At the very least, he allows difficult things to happen so that he can use them for his glory. And we know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that does not disclude disability. I remember in high school, I went to a summer camp and they brought in a speaker as a Christian man who was blind. They wanted him to give a testimony about his faith in God. And, and I don't remember everything that he said, but one thing stuck out. He told us as kids, he told us definitively, he said, God did not make me blind. And, and he said that because he wanted us not to, to look down upon God. He was trying to kind of get God off the hook and, and, and help us. I think in the moment, I didn't have a lot of understanding, but I remember thinking in my mind, okay, if God didn't make you blind, then who did? Of course, in the moment, I, I didn't like interrupt him or anything. So I just I went home and I looked in my Bible and I was kind of trying to figure this out. And I remember reading this verse where Moses is complaining to God about his speech issue. And listen to what God tells him. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. God says, Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Man, that's pretty pointed right there. God is reminding Moses of something that's really taught all through Scripture that God makes people. God makes all people. He knits everyone together in their mother's womb, and his knitting is not reserved only for those who were born seeing and hearing. No, no one is an accident or a mistake or defective. Even when there's what the doctors might call abnormal, it's not to God. Everyone who exists is an image bearer created by a sovereign God. So, who made this man blind? Well, the world says no one did. He was just dealt a really bad hand. But we can say with confidence, God did. At the very least, we must say that God permitted it to happen. And why would God do such a thing? Well, the world says oh, he must be cruel or evil or vindictive. It must be a punishment for something. But Jesus says, no, it's not because he sinned, though he is a sinner. And it's not because his parents sinned, even though they're sinners too. It's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God is sovereign over disability. He makes every person in his image. Therefore, every person has inherent dignity and value despite their physical or mental capabilities. And God has a plan and a purpose for every person. There may be suffering and pain and difficulty. That's going to be a part of all of our stories. But God delights in using our difficult circumstances to display his greatness. He delights in using our weakness to display his strength. And he delighted in using this man's blindness to display his power. Jesus healed the man. And he gave him a testimony. Afterwards, the Pharisees are trying to figure out what happened and what this man's talking about. And they're asking him, how did did this happen? Who healed you? And the man, he says, look... I don't know. All I know is this I was blind and now I can see. And his testimony became perhaps the most famous Christian song ever written. We just sang Amazing Grace. The works of God were displayed in him. And it was because of his blindness, not in spite of it. It was through his situation, not around it. Because as Jesus taught and as God told Moses, God is sovereign over disability. Let's look at our second question. Number two, when it comes to this topic, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? We've already noted that Jesus encountered many people with disabilities throughout his ministry. Uh, Many of the stories in the Gospels are of Jesus performing miracles and healing those people. Uh, That was one of the key ways that Jesus revealed who he was. But one thing we have to reckon with is that Jesus didn't heal everyone. For example, in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool at Bethesda, a place where many of those with physical needs gathered each day, and he could have performed quite the miracle there, healing all those people with the snap of his fingers, but we only read of him healing one man that day. Other times, Jesus would go to a city to perform miracles, and then he would leave without doing any because of the people's unbelief. And we all know many people today who have all sorts of physical, emotional, mental challenges. They've prayed for many years to be healed, and yet it hasn't happened. So if Jesus had the ability to heal everyone, why didn't he do it? If he can still heal today, why doesn't he do it? Well, I've learned a lot on this topic from a lady that you need to know, if you don't already, Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, One month after Johnny's senior year of high school, she had a diving accident, broke her neck, and was told she would never use her arms or legs again. As a Christian, she believed God could and would heal her, so she sought out that healing diligently. She went to all of those healing services and TV crusades. She was anointed with oil, prayed over by televangelists, everything she could think of. And yet, she stayed in her wheelchair. When she realized that she was likely not to be healed, that's when the depression set in. Her sister would physically get her out of bed each day, park her wheelchair in front of a music stand with a Bible on it, and put a stick in her mouth so that she could turn the pages And one day she found the answer she was looking for in a story from Luke chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me. This is a famous story where Jesus does indeed heal a man who was paralyzed. But in this occasion, Jesus does things a bit differently in order to make a really important point. This is Luke chapter 5 verses 17 through 20. On one of those days as Jesus was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Think about this scenario for me as we pause there. A group of men are trying to get their friend who's paralyzed to Jesus. Now, presumably they'd heard about what he was capable of doing and they wanted Jesus to heal him. They wanted this so badly that they go on the roof, they dig a hole, break through someone's roof to lower this guy down to Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, I wonder in the moment, it doesn't say, but I wonder if the friends were thinking, okay, great, but that's not exactly Jesus, why we brought him. <laughs> and I wonder if the guy on the mat was thinking, great, my sins are forgiven, but that's not exactly why I was brought here. But Jesus was making a point to the Pharisees who were looking on because here's what happens next. Look at verses 21 to 25. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Jesus did, in fact, heal this man, but that was not the part that offended the Pharisees. It was the part where he forgave sins as God. That's why he did that first. Jesus wanted to show them that he alone has the authority to forgive sins. He wanted to prove who he was by doing the harder thing first. Then he wanted to show that because of his authority as God, he could also tell the man to rise and walk. So here's the answer to the second question. What did Jesus do? Jesus demonstrated that our common need is eternal. Listen, our physical problems in life, though very real and difficult, are not our greatest problems. So our greatest need is not to be relieved of physical suffering. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins so that we might have eternal life. Again, Johnny Erickson a commenting on this passage, she says it like this. She says, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but they're symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. Listen to this. She says, God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. She said, God's goal is not to make our lives easier or more comfortable. His goal is to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus, by whatever means necessary. That's why sometimes God heals, but oftentimes he doesn't. Because it's often through the pain and the struggle that we grow the most. So as we love and care for people with disabilities, as we ourselves experience physical challenges and pains in this life, let us never forget The one thing we all need is Jesus and his forgiveness. That is true of every person, regardless of their age, race, gender, economic level, or ability. At the core, we are all the same. We're image bearers who have fallen into sin and need the grace of Jesus to rescue us. Jesus knew that. That's why he said his chief mission was not to heal and help, though he did that. He said his chief mission was to seek and to save the lost, and that's what Jesus did. Here's our third and last question this morning, number three. What does Jesus command? In light of all we've seen, what should we do? We've seen that all people are created by God, made in his image, that God is sovereign over all, including disability, and that everyone's greatest need is to know Christ, and thus we should see every person in light of that. But what is our calling right now to the disability community? That's what I want to end with by looking lastly at a parable Jesus told that was really quite radical at the time and honestly still is today. Flip with me to Luke chapter 14. This is known as the parable of the great banquet. Jesus is telling a series of parables on banquets and feasts, which were common celebrations in this time. Uh, People would throw a a big dinner party and they would invite all the important people to come so they could impress them and, and raise their social standing. And then those people would invite them back to their party in return. And then they would have this cool social group going on. In light of that, listen to what Jesus says when he was invited to one of these dinner parties. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus, he said also to the man who had invited him, Jesus is, is taking here what was commonly done at this time and he's completely flipping it over. He said, hey, don't invite the people that everyone else invites. Those who are viewed by society as important in value. Those who can give you something back in return. So you scratch their back and they scratch yours. No, don't do that. He says, instead, invite the people whose society does not value and dismisses. And who's that group he lists? It's those who are poor those with disabilities, which were often one and the same in this time. No one would have invited those groups to their dinner parties because they couldn't repay them back in any way. Jesus says, that's who I want you to include. And Jesus continues to use this theme of the banquet in a parable right after this. And we come to see that Jesus isn't just talking about having people to a party, but he's using this picture of a banquet to talk about who will be invited And included in his kingdom. The banquet is his kingdom. The Pharisees. They were refusing to come in. So Jesus was inviting all those who were forgotten. And left out. So when we put these parables together. Here's what we see Jesus is calling us to do. Jesus commanded us to pursue. And welcome people with disabilities. Into his church. I've learned a lot over the past few years on this topic, thanks to some very patient and helpful people in our church. And what I've learned is that in most of our churches today, the disability community, which we said makes up almost one in five people, is largely missing. People with a disability or who have a family member with a disability are statistically less likely to attend church and less likely to feel welcomed. Many of them have had bad experiences in churches where they were mistreated and misunderstood. That's because sometimes in church, just as in broader society, they are viewed as projects to be worked on or problems to be fixed rather than image bearers to be valued. We slap a label on people and then they're they're different. They're other. They're less than. They just need our help and our charity, but we don't actually want them to be included or have a seat at our table. So we as a church need to seriously stop and think and ask, are we a church that is welcoming to the disability community? Would the person who uses a wheelchair be able to get around our building, find a seat in our worship center, and be able to sit in your Sunday school class? Or would they conclude, I'm not welcome here? Would the child with autism be welcomed in our worship service, even if they had a hard time sitting still and being quiet, or would they get labeled a distraction? Would you be willing to help them in Sunday school so they could learn while their parents go to an adult class? Or would that family conclude, we aren't welcome here? And what about our senior adults? It is very difficult for some of our seniors just to get here on Sunday mornings. Do they feel valued and loved When they walk in the door, when they can no longer drive here and make it on their own, would you be willing to go and pick them up? Or would they conclude, we aren't welcome here. This is just a church for young people. Guys, these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. Look, we're not a perfect church. There's no such thing. We know that. We're limited by resources and volunteers just like every church. But honestly, what kind of steps can we take? could you take to help us become more welcoming to people with disabilities? One big thing we've been burdened with as a church staff is our playgrounds at both campuses. Uh, We are blessed to have had this playground for many, many years, and, and we've done a good job taking care of it, but to be honest, it's simply not very accommodating to children with special needs. So we have a goal to one day build a new, more accessible one. Let me tell you, it's quite costly to do that. So, is that something we're willing to invest in? So that when a family with a child with disabilities shows up, they know this is a church that actually wants them here? Are we willing to do what it takes to put our money where our mouth is, to show our community that we truly value all people as image bearers? And what about you personally? Do you have a friendship with someone who has a disability? Would you invite them to your home for dinner? Would you encourage your children to befriend other children with disabilities? Would you volunteer when we host a respite night for families? Would you drive someone with disabilities to their job? Again, these are the kinds of questions we need to ask. Because when we love people who the world has disregarded, when we value those with disabilities as image bearers, We show them then that they're welcome in the kingdom of God. We reflect the very heart of God. And we then grow to become more like Jesus, who is the image of God himself. Would you bow with me in prayer?